Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. Oh man, there are so many nifty and scenic roads into the book we're covering in today's episode. Got my little map out here. Whew. Let's see here. Which route should we take? Oh look, here's one marked provocative. Is that is that French or something? Provocative? It has a ring to it, doesn't it? Yes, let's go that way. My experience in life is that there are some alleyways in academia where you find very juvenile conceptions of corporate power. You know, I mean, the kind of folks who assume corporations are evil and are to blame for a lot of things in the world, but then you ask them a question like, okay, but have you done any work to examine the structure of the industry around company X or, or you know, like looked at any basic markers of its financial health or even like read its annual reports? and you receive blank stares. And then within that set of dark alleys, and oh my God, dear listeners, the darkness I brave just for you, just for you. I won't even go into it. It's just so frightening and troubling. Within that set of dark alleys, there's a smaller set of even darker places where people act like corporations have a lot of control over what we think. Like we are all dupes for advertisements or something. And the people who make up corporations have definitely done some terrible things in the world and throughout history. I mean, that's what my first book was about. And many multinational corporations have like neo-colonialist relationships with poor nations around the world. But sometimes you bump into the presumption that corporations can just push their products on local populations in countries other than their home ones. And that just doesn't seem right uh, in many cases. 
I think there are many interesting things to learn from historian Paula Della Cruz Fernandez's book, Gendered Capitalism, Sewing Machines and Multinational Business in Spain and Mexico, 1850 to 1940. Cruz Fernandez wears several different hats in the world. She works for the Business History Conference, the History Department at the University of Florida, and is co-editor-in-chief of the New Books Network in Espanol. And uh, as you know, we too are part of the New Books Network, so it's a nice little collection, connection to make here. Cruz Fernandez's book is neat in many ways, but what I really like is how she shows that selling sewing machines was not a top-down process by which an American corporation forced its products on unwilling consumers, but a complex development that involved collective entrepreneurship and most importantly, the dreams, ideals, and efforts of women who worked with sewing machines in the home. The book raises larger questions about how we think about processes of technology adoption in different cultures and about the relationship between corporations and consumers. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It was a lot of fun for me. And hey, get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I love your podcast. I love the conversations you have. So it, it is my pleasure to be here. Well, thanks so much. Uh, so Gendered Capitalism is a, a neat book. When you explain it to strangers, uh, what do you say it's about? And what were you trying to do with it? Thank you. That's a good question. I t- usually talk about first about the women about and also about sewing and embroidery, right? Uh, because that was my mm-hmm. initial um, point of research or topic of research. I was very interested in the lives, um, the economic lives, but also the cultural and social lives of women that sew not only for um, market purposes for, uh, for uh, to get income, but also um, just because, right? Just because they mm-hmm. were uh, mothers, because they were grandmothers, <laughs> because they were girls mm-hmm. uh, in in um, in Spain and Mexico. So that was my initial um, my initial point of entry. And um, when I started looking more into it, when I started graduate school, I realized um, that technology right and the sewing machine uh, was very important for. Uh, for all this variety of activities. So not only, again, for women that had uh, sewing and uh, embroidery as as their um, trade, but also for those that were uh, in the home. And the more I looked at uh, at them, I I saw Singer, right? I saw Singer over and over, Mm -hmm. and I saw Singer being in every home I looked at, but also going back very um very late so the oldest um sewing machines i i could see were always singer and um uh, or how you we say it in spanish la la singer um uh-huh. and uh and so there there were other brands of course but singer was kind of the 
also the term for sewing machine, right? So if I ask someone, do you have yeah. a sewing machine? Oh, yes, I do have a singer. So it wasn't, oh, yes, uh -huh. I have a máquina de coser. No, I had a singer. So um, that uh, and, of course, then uh, being in graduate school at uh, Florida International University, with uh, amazing scholars like uh, Ken Lee Partito, who actually gave a talk uh, in my in another class about sources. And I don't know if coincidentally he talked about sewing machines and I said, well, of course I have, I have to look at that. And then of course, Mira Wilkins, who was also teaching when, when I was in grad school. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that, you know, so often historians of technology and business historians, they either start with the machine or they start with the firm, right, as their their center of interest. But I think and I think I saw this kind of come out in your acknowledgments mm -hmm. uh, section, too. You really were interested in sewing and then kind of like, you know, backed yourself into the business history or something like that. Is that right? That's right. I mean, I um, again, in graduate school, I. I understood and I learned how the firm is this kind of back structure that that kind of gives shape to all these. Um, I understood it as uh, giving shape to all these economic uh, um, activities, um, yeah. and in the also in the global uh, in the global um, economy, and that was very important to me. So I very rapidly understood how I had to look at the firm. I had to understand yeah. why. Um, sewing was such a global and um, and um, such a global activity, and also performed by, by women in in the places I was looking at. Um, I had to look at to under, to explain it. I had to look at the firm. I I, I needed yeah. to see <laughs> what the structure and who had managed that um, uh, the organization for uh, for sewing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have a similar story, and I did not expect I would be a business historian when I grew up. I, I thought I, I was wanted to be a professor, but I business historian. But when you study capitalism and technology, firms are you know they're important. It turns out when when your 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 early his your early interest in sewing were you were you kind of interested in a kind of like cultural history perspective, or how were you thinking about sewing early on? Yes, I was definitely uh, looking uh, again uh, at um, women's work uh, perspective. Yeah. I was doing uh, as a as an undergrad and as a anime in in Spain. Back in Spain, I did lots of courses on the history of women, women's studies, uh -huh. and one uh, of my um, advisors also at FIU was uh, Aurora Morcillo, who was a very important historian of gender and. Um, and women in Spain and about Spain. So for I me, see. it was all about, but I, again, I wanted to, there was work uh, already done about this um, transition to industrial sewing and how the sewing machine had uh, uh, made hundreds uh, of women and thousands of women of women go to the fab, to the factory and work. Uh, so for me, that was not the, the, uh, my interest, right? I, I was more interested in that sphere and that space of the home, uh, which yeah. had been really uh, on the margins of studies of the firm, for sure. But also, yeah. um, on it was kind of a given, in, even in um, in labor history, right? So, so okay, so we know that there are women that 
and there is this uh, gender ideologies uh, of domesticity that are there, but but we are but we are interested on the women that went out. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I yeah, wanted yeah. to stay in and in the home <laughs> and kind of uh, bring the home up and and elevate it as a space where things happen, but um, mm-hmm. definitely as a space that can that gave back to the corporation and really structured the corporation yeah. in this in this case. Yeah, well, I think you're, you know, do that very successfully. So I'm out, well, kind of spell out what the perspective you bring kind of does for business history as, as we go along. Um, can you, uh, can you put Singer's history in context for us? So how, you know, not, Singer's a very important company in the history of technology, you know, history of technology and business history, the history of mass production, like David Hounschel's book from American System to Mass Production covers it, Chandler's visible hand it's a you know it's an important story but not all of our not all the listeners will be familiar with it so can you just kind of spell out a kind of brief history of how it kind of starts up and what it was up to initially absolutely so <clears throat> you're right the uh the singer sewing machine uh company is a textbook right example of both yeah the um the modernization, the process of uh, modernizing the firm or the corporation in the uh, second half of the 19th century in the U.S., uh, but also it's a textbook for a multinational uh, for the um, the idea of the multinational company, and so so Singer started um, was incorporated in 1863 in the United States, so it's headquartered in the United States and continues to be headquartered in the United States for over a century. Okay, so after um, the 1960s, there are some um, movement towards, you know, it gets divided and it gets sold and still there are offices in in, in the United States, but it's not what we see as the uh, very centralized, vertically integrated uh, corporation that it was. So in 1863, uh, it's incorporated and by then, uh, Singer had lots of um, of competition in the U.S. Uh, it had, yep. you know, the home sewing company. It had how sewing company, uh, sewing yeah, sewing uh, machines company. It had um, Wheeler and uh, Wilson, who which is actually acquired by Singer later on. So it's very much. Um, a part of a sewing industry that is booming in the United States. Uh, but starting in the 1860s, 1870s, uh, it, it is the only corporation, it is the only company in the U.S. that it starts uh, going out, going abroad very uh, rapidly. So other companies are um, exporting sewing machines, right? And we have data on that. Um, and so they just export uh, like any other good. But um, the Singer Sewing Machine Company opens a factory in um, in Scotland already by the 1870s, and then it has other um, factories operated directly by uh, the U.S. headquarters um, <clears throat> in Germany, and then in Russia at the end of the century of the 19th century, um, and again everything vertically integrated under one roof which is uh which is in new york and um Mm -hmm. so it also has uh and this is very um specific 
to Singer is a very centralized and organized um, system of distribution. A system of distribution that is both salesmen, but also stores, right? So it's not only salesmen mm-hmm. going out, uh, knocking on doors and selling uh, only sewing, only Singer sewing machines, um, but also stores that are only Singer and that are staffed by only Singer employees that can only sell Singer. And why I say that is important because um, that gives Singer a lot of control in terms of marketing in terms of um of um also the message that they want to uh convey with the sewing machine and their advertising but also in terms of prices in terms of how they sell the sewing machine they could sell on credit which others don't didn't really uh get to do or at least Mm -hmm. that much um because they could do it through their uh through other wholesalers right but not directly through through uh their their uh, company and um <clears throat> after the 19th century after uh, at the turn of the 20th century singer was already in more than 20 countries with this distribution system not with the factory system right so uh that's yeah. one of the points uh of my book is that uh we need to look more into other forms of um of management, not only manufacturing, which is what uh, yeah. studies of uh, multinational corporations had focused on, uh, but also uh, about marketing and distribution, because this really is what uh, puts the corporation in contact with the consumer and in the case of Singer, in contact with the local consumer, right? With uh, Right. <laughs> With those, And it's where women come in too, to, to get back to where yes. we, you know, we started earlier. The the manufacturing story can be kind of very male dominated. It's a story of dudes setting up production and stuff. Not that there's certainly women involved in the that, but um, right. But if we look at your story, there's a lot more women involved, right? Yes, yes, and not always so visible, right? That's yeah. then why the idea. I mean, focusing on on embroidery and sewing was so important because that's also the way I brought women in. Until I found them, <laughs> until I found them in yeah, the corporation, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. because they one of the departments that um, there were women working in the manufacturing side uh, in the factories that were assembling, um, yeah, making and assembling sewing machines, but they were mostly in the sampling um, step. So at the end, when they had to uh, to try the the machines and see if they worked, um, that's where I I could um, document seeing, uh, women working within the factory. But yeah. um, within the distribution system and within the stores, they also were um, not so officially visible, uh, but they were part. They they were not so much sales women right they weren't going door to door but they were part of the stores right um in every store um there had to be a woman um especially to do these demonstrations and uh, and to try to work the sewing machine with the customers uh but also one very important um part of my of my book is the exhibitions right and the exhibitions were could either be permanent or or temporary, and these were events um, that women prepared with 
you know, um, kind of not just um, the word doesn't come out, not just once, but they were always making samples, right, to show other people. Yeah. And they were making samples and applying embroidery or sewing with the machine to their domestic um, tasks. And when it came the time to have an exhibition, they would decorate, they would, uh, they would prepare a, a nice showcase with all these, these uh, objects. So over time in, ev- in mostly all the country, all the countries that Singer was part of, um, they created these exhibitions and uh, that Singer, that women um, uh, organized. And then um, I was able to track uh, to document the creation of the art department, which is the embroidery department, uh, in the 1890s in the U.S., uh, which mm-hmm. and it was orga- it was created to organize the world's um, for the world's Colombian exhibition. Right. So after that, I don't have a specific business records about the department anymore. That's all. That's all we have. But we have yeah proof that there were thousands of exhibits in all the stores and uh, also international exhibits after that. So I assume they continued to work um, on that, you know, doing that organization. But then in each of the countries, um, and specifically in Spain and Mexico, which I, I focused on, they had this this um, departments they called, or in Spanish, uh, in Spain, for example, it was called Seccion de Bordados, which is uh, embroidery section, embroidery unit. And um, they organized for, um, to decorate window fronts, to um, be part of uh, exhibitions, but also um, with time more and more to have schools, right, as part of Singer. So they Mm -hmm. had Singer schools were, um, and they provided the certifications that the government would require and things like that. What it made me think of is now, uh, I think, you know, as a product of like consumer capitalism and devices of the last 30 to 40 years and electronics and computing and all this, people, you know, analysts have become very focused on like subcultures and fandoms and uh, all the activities that other people are doing that kind of generate sales and loyalties to products, right? And so part of what I was interested in in, in your writing about this is kind of that culture, uh, definitely, uh, you know, pr- primarily organized by women, that's clear, of these exhibits and activities around the sewing machine and these activities and how much of it was singer, you know, and singer leading it or people... Mm-hmm. Versus just like, you know, in these local spaces, you have all these people, this is what they do, right? right? And so, you know, I just wondered how how you ended up thinking about that balance of just like, you know, like sub, you know, like culture, subcultures of, mm-hmm. of activities and technologies around these things. Yeah, that's really interesting. I kept, when I was in grad school and writing my dissertation, which the book is really my dissertation. Um, I kept looking, I kept um, reading these books about, um, well, books like uh, Michael Aras or uh, Mona Domos about how corporations kind of dominate, right, um, mm-hmm. through technology uh, or kind of how the West or uh, industrial nations became to be on top 
because of technology or pro progress and things like or uh, prowess or things like that. But yeah. um, for me, it was really never like that. So, so first, the people I could talk to, or when I saw um, documents about talking about the sewing machine. First, like you say, they didn't mention Singer. Uh, if they were against the sewing machine, it wasn't Singer. It was just the idea of, uh, you know, produce, having to produce more, putting women outside the home, things like that. But um, I wanted to, and it's, nice, it's good to see that you could read that in my book, is it wasn't that powerful, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. What was important yeah, exactly. is that <laughs> what was important is yeah. that exactly that culture of sewing, that culture that yeah. that those practices and values associated with sewing and embroidery and the home and mm -hmm. being part of um of these life cycle moments when you could sew something and make it special and make it and give it you know yeah. give it as a gift. That was much more important, and so. Even though the sewing machine perhaps was criticized because it um, it undermined some previous skills, you know that were hand, you know, yeah. um, handmade um, um, techniques, for example, hand techniques. They also didn't seem to get bothered by the idea that they could do the same with the sewing machine. Um, so, yeah. um, so. In that sense, for me, it was much more important to see how they integrated the sewing machine and how they um, understood. Um, so both of those ideas about the technology, both being a bad thing and both being a great thing, just lived side by side. And I could see yes. that constantly. And sometimes when I, even, you know, when I ask people if they knew where uh, the Singer sewing machine was based, like, you know, if it was a, a American, an American corporation or not, they don't know. They think it's, an, it's a Spanish. They think it's, you know, it's not. Um, so all these ideas yeah. also about um, uh, foreignness and uh, reactions against, you know, that was that is very much part of literature or of um, later literature about Americanization and, and things like yeah. that uh, in Europe. Um, you don't see that with Singer. You don't see that mm. at all. Uh, you see it in some cases like Japan, but it's later and it's because of labor disputes. So it's, you know, um, mm -hmm. that was very important for me to, 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 uh, explain because sometimes, um, that was also my way of giving, agency to the women and the practices right uh it's not yep. always the overarching the overreaching multinational uh sometimes mm -hmm. <laughs> in this case yeah yeah no it, it to me it connected to my friends and colleagues who study technology in latin america and other places like fabian prieto nanez mm -hmm. who like looks at satellites and <laughs> diana montano does Correct. electrifying mexico i mean when, when we start to look at how local places adopt technologies it becomes much different than this kind of absolutely uh and and if we looked at japan what the story was there we would find it has to do with local meanings and and con contestations that were already there right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that would be the yeah that's great
Can you say, so I wanted to back up, kind of back up for a second. And say, how did you come to, um, you know, look at Spain and Mexico and, you know, what did you think focusing on the, the two nations would get you, got you as an analyst? So that is mostly because of going back to the corporation, right? So uh, Singer started um, the first place it goes out uh, with a subsidiary is the, U- is the UK, right? But um, with the distribution system, it goes, uh, and also Canada, but with the distribution system, it also starts going uh, out through Mexico, to Mexico, right? Through the closers uh, in the border. But also, and so uh, in Europe, Spain was also a very early market. Um, so for for the sake of writing the history of the corporation abroad and mm-hmm. the history of this distribution system, both Spain and Mexico, uh, in the Hispanic market, both Spain and Mexico were first and, uh, and the most important markets um, in the Hispanic world well into the 20th century, right? So uh, then we see um, South America coming in very strongly, but it's more after the 1920s that, you know, we can see um, a distribution system being uh, developed and things like that in, in places like Argentina or or um, Ecuador or or Peru. So not that the sewing machines or Singer didn't get there um, until 1920s, but the system of distribution, I could not document it before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I wanted to ask you about, just kind of in a kind of lit review, you know, kind of the literatures you're drawing on is um, this. I, I'm going to mention it to you before we kind of got going. Um, is this notion of kind of mediated consumption. So uh, I mentioned uh, Carolyn Goldstein's Creating Consumers is a really important book for me and has been for a long time. And I was just thinking about, you know, uh, you know, the relationship between firms and consumers. I, you know, I think that business historians have done a, a, a you know, been writing about this for 20 years, mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years at this point, at some point. But I still think it's not a literature that's leaked out of that of business history mm-hmm. into other areas and technology studies necessarily, uh, history of technology. So, yeah, I mean, how did you think about the firm's, how did the firm build relationship to consumers in these different places? Right. Um, so what you said is actually even more, it's even more true for the case of multinationals, right? If we look at international mm-hmm. business history, these approach of trying to uh, see how the multinational connects with uh, with the consum- the consumer is very very um, lacking <laughs> I don't know yeah not <laughs> right so definitely there is not much done for the 19th century also uh-huh. because there is not um, a lot of uh, of firms, right? Um, working, yeah. uh, I mean, operating uh, at the, at that time, or at least following the uh, the definition of the firm as Mirabel, as the multinational, following the definition of the multinational firm that Mira Wilkins or um, or Jeff Jones have have provided. But mm-hmm. when you look again at this marketing. Uh, um operations you can see that 
in reality, what you get is people from these places being part of the corporation. And I think that's yeah. where I, um, that's how I wanted to portray Singer in local markets because, uh, yes, the, uh, the central office in Ciudad de Mexico or the central office in Madrid was uh, staffed by men and the main right. agent was, you know, a male agent that was directly designated by New York or maybe London. Um, but under him, there was, you know, it was all the Spaniards and there's a lot of uh, of documentation about problems between uh, locals, uh, local agents, and and for example, um, the general agent in in Mexico, and there's also there were also lots of problems in the U.S. It's not it's not just Mexico or uh, <laughs> or Spain, and um, yeah. but this idea of of uh, you were asking about the consumer and the and the corporation, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Focusing on the store, focusing on those selling, focusing on those mm-hmm. practices, you need to know how they got their materials, how they got access to to the technology, how, and mm-hmm. just thinking about the messages that the, and just thinking about the context in which in which these selling agents wanted to connect to their customer uh, or or the client is what gave me you know kind of sense of uh, that it's all about right that relationship that you create with the yeah. last part of the production or or the, with the chain right <laughs> between the, yeah 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 uh, with the customer so um what i was also i have to say that um again i was studying multinationals at a time uh when i was younger than uh when i started my phd um i got very influenced by this notion of the corporation of specifically of the American corporation as being this really bad <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. organization that would destroy yeah. um destroy uh you know local markets destroy it would just become I mean come and just do whatever they wanted and this was you know the 90s and then the 2000s it was very yeah, much yeah. <laughs> Seattle right. the battle exactly. in Seattle right exactly. yeah exactly so, um <laughs> and I think I got you know being in Spain and being you know in a country that is not super rich and um yeah and I got a lot of foreign influence right after the uh, transition to democracy so those yeah. you know those kind of changes influence uh me my my perspective on multinationals but the more i look at how these organizations have to work in other countries yes they can have lots of obstacles with politics and governments and but when it comes to people they have to work with them <laughs> i mean it's and yeah and if 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 working with them means appealing with whatever whatever has to be like if you know yeah. now it can be you know whatever coca-cola is doing to make people drink coca-cola well that's already i mean they're they're doing it they're actually making people being part of that uh corporate culture which is uh and that kind of cultural practice that is drinking soda right um so mm-hmm. 
that was definitely more what I was looking after um, when I was looking at sewing and uh, the different materials that were prepared about sewing and embroidery. You know, how how did these people make sense of, of a technology that, yes, was foreign, yes, was revolutionary, but indeed was going to be part and was going to make a lot of sense within their within their cultures. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, that, that, that sets me up perfectly for my next question for you. Is it, can you give us a sense of, you know, what um, kind of the cultures of sewing and embroidery practices were in Spain and, and Mexico before the introduction? Because part of your point is that there's all these norms and ideals caught up around these practices, and those norms and ideals are deeper than the, the machine, right? Mm-hmm. So what what was going on with sewing and right. embroidery already? Yes, and that's really important uh, because and now I'm actually writing about machine embroidery and I'm seeing how this standardization and and homogenization of sewing practices and, and, and patterns and designs, it actually came before machine embroidery. Um, mm, beautiful. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, in my in the book, I go back all the way to the 16th century uh, because I could see how at that time when educators or Christian you know moralists writing about what the proper um, woman should do and how she should behave and how she should educate um, her daughters, um, they start mentioning sewing constantly and so they say you know sewing is this very um great activity uh that makes Mm. you uh not be doing nothing and at the same time it uh, it you are being creative because you're Mm. um creating beautiful things and it um and who knows if you ever need it (laughs) you can actually sell your products or you can actually be part of the market and uh, contribute to your household's um, um, income. And so mm-hmm. that happens in the... So it's very much linked to Christianity as well, to morality. It makes, you know, it's a moral thing to know. It's, it makes women honorable. It makes um, them be uh, constantly occupied on something yeah. that is going to create you know, good, uh, nice um, artistic products, but also something representative of their place in society, which is as, you know, as uh, household managers or as yeah. women of the home. And when you go, um, you know, 18th century, it, it starts being that part when um, that, defines sewing as something as a skill that you could also uh, use for the market becomes even more important right but it becomes important mm-hmm. in the sense that um 
that you could do it in the home as well. Uh, so you don't need mm -hmm. to be um, um, to be part of this uh, kind of grow uh, growing um, middle class. Well, it's just middle class is just a big word for nineteenth century Spain, but um, you know the Borgesi and being part of that uh, economic growth. You could actually do it from home and still, if you didn't have to go out and work the sewing machine in the factory, you could still uh, do it in the home. Yeah. So um, reformers and, you know, and also education um, officers in the 19th century starts, start also um, taking this uh, approach and start saying, well, if you're uh, going to educate girls, you have to include sewing because it's such mm -hmm. an act, it's, a, it's such a good activity for them. They make um, they you teach them um, a skill, but also you teach them that um, that they are part of the home because uh, you know at the end of the day, sewing and embroidery, you're gonna sew to decorate your home, or you're, you're gonna sew to to decorate the clothes that you're going to give uh, to your mm -hmm. daughter who is getting married. So it's everything is all of the activities, all the practices, all the values kind of go back to this idea of the family, of the home, of, you know, uh, of this domesticity uh, that is so uh, much um, valued, right, uh, in the 19th mm -hmm. century. So um, that goes uh in the 19th century and i could see how sewing kind of renovates itself <laughs> and so it, it was a very good thing for aristocratic women in the 16th century it becomes a really good thing for all social um for the entire social spectrum in the uh, 19th century uh because also for those going to the factory at least you're sewing right um is something that will also uh, allow you to to get uh, income or or be, but then in the twentieth century when we see more the ideals about the independent women and the new women, uh, modern woman and you know things, it it also it, it's okay as well because it uh, it not only represents the home but it represents um, so then it becomes kind of the uh, a sign or um, a model for the independent woman because they can do they can be by themselves they can get their own business they can be entrepreneurs with sewing and in the house <laughs> and in the home. Mm -hmm. so it's all um it kind of renovates uh yeah. but still persists uh you know in this idea of in this relationship to the home and and domesticity and uh, the way i finish my book is that you know we see this in 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 current, um, in modern firms, in modern, uh, so Etsy, for example, kind of <laughs> goes back to that idea, right? Uh, there, are, mm -hmm. there's this um, emphasis on this um, celebration of the home and of yeah. doing it yourself um, as part of other ideas of uh, independent entrepreneurship or um, being by yourself or I mean just you know or singer sing um uh creating your own business and things like that. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah, I think you put it at a, at one point. You said something like that. You know, women had their own dreams, mm -hmm. uh, right? And that does, yeah, this sewing machine happened to fit into the way they were dreaming about their lives <laughs> and their futures. Right. I have another section that is, you know, this idea and connects to the corporationist. Um, I mean, what the what we were talking about Americanization and corporations being overreaching or not is, you know. Yeah. Um, Spaniards had these expectations and dreams to be modern. So why not, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, we tend to see other cultures as original cultures, and and you know they, no, but perhaps yeah. that's not the case. In you know, perhaps there's the yeah, that's the case in not a lot of aspects. But you know, in terms of capitalism and how it has worked, um, you know, with with um less developed nations you know whether it surprises us or not <laughs> that's you know it's okay yeah 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 <laughs> again i think we have to study how people in these places uh how their dreams worked you know and that they're off they're often different than american dreams but that doesn't mean they don't involve these very modern technologies right. exactly you know? yeah yeah julio yeah. moreno puts it very well in his book right um don't junkie don't go home i mean not because we yeah. think that that traditions get undermined which they probably do um sure doesn't mean that there is a good uh you know part of the population that actually wants to <laughs> yeah totally i heard you earlier you're like you know singers this very important multinational in this earlier period, you know, and has much more reach than so many other companies, mm -hmm. including the early auto companies. You know, I mean, they're they're just so much more reach than these firms. Um, so, uh, you know, how did Singer initially move into Spain and Mexico? Mm -hmm. And I was also hoping as you explain that, I mean, you know, if it's helpful to do it in two parts, whatever. But I'm also interested in this notion of collective entrepreneurship, mm. which it was the first time I bumped into it, but I found it very helpful. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> Singer enters the first Singer store in Spain. I could um, I have a, a source for is 1873 and it's a store in wow. Sevilla. And that is it is. So Seville or Sevilla is in the south of Spain. It's very, mm -hmm. it was very surprising to me. And it, it is still very surprising to me that I, hasn't, and I have not found one store earlier than that in Madrid. But, you know, that's what it mm -hmm. is. Uh, so there might have been, but I haven't found the document for it. Um, but before that, uh, so that's super early, right? Uh, before that, and perhaps around that time, Singer sewing machines would be sold in larger um, wholesalers. They would sell okay. other machines as, as well. They would sell also German sewing machines and mm -hmm. they would sell mm -hmm. uh, other American uh, uh, sewing machines. The same thing happened in, um, in Mexico, but in Mexico is, it is a little different because they, Singer, kind of made a, uh, well, they, made a contract with Casa Boker, which was a wholesaler. Um, and they, and Casa Boker actually agrees with Singer to only sell Singer sewing machines. Okay. Um, but of course, Singer could not 
control whether or not other wholesalers could sell sewing their machines mm-hmm. somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Mexico, Singer stays with Casa Boker for a long time. At the same time, it has um, it has it starts opening its own stores uh, to try to control the market a little bit more, and um, it starts um, and also it sells machines through the border, uh, you know, through the office in San Antonio. And, you know, there's not a clear line between, at the beginning, between what, uh, you know, where the stores, where the sewing machines were sold uh, in the kind of northern part of Mexico. And, you know, this is 1860s, yeah. 1870s. It's still okay. very, very close to to the to the war, to the war between uh, the, United, the United States and Mexico. Um, but mm-hmm. in Spain... Very early, the company starts opening stores and um, starts not selling to those wholesalers and actually looking for wholesalers that are selling singers or machines and telling them not to do so. Um, by the 1890s, um, in both countries, with the entry of President uh, Frederick Bourne of, uh, of Singer, they uh, both countries along with other countries, have uh, this mandate, I guess, from the United States that only singer can sell singers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what happens since 1892 or three. Um, Casa Boker no longer has this loyal loyalty agreement with singer. And Singer starts opening what they call in Mexico are encargadurías, which are not depots, but kind of bigger offices. So not the central Mm -hmm. office, but kind of under the central office. And they open encargadurías in almost every state. Um, And then each encargaduría would have uh, perhaps seven, depending on on how much, uh, how high... um, how large the population of that area would be, they would have either three stores or more stores. Or, but in, uh, the same thing happened in Spain. And um, but what was very important in both countries uh, was this the the figure of the selling agent. They would be the ones going to the more rural locations. Yeah. Yeah. And. In both in both countries, the amount of sales um, that were registered before the turn of the twentieth century really surprised the um, the executives. They said they write in their correspondence that it is just amazing how well sales are going, given that both you know both Spain and Mexico are considered really poor countries, like. There's not right. enough income in these countries, in their view, to really buy this um, this expensive technology. But by that time, by that time, um, the technology was not that expensive anymore. But also, um, this uh, system of leasing, which consisted consisted of a contract. Um, by which the client or the purchaser would pay every week. Um, and I have calculated it took between one and two years to pay for it, uh, depending on how much you know money uh, the, the first payment would have been. Um, 
this had a lot of uh of um it attracted a lot of lots of purchases and clients in both uh countries the um the leasing um the installment payments um option so by then um that's you know by then the system is created and after that um it kind of never changed much. It just stayed with the stores, the uh, offices, and uh, neither country had um, had a factory um, in their uh-huh. history, uh, which didn't happen with places like Brazil or Argentina. Both both uh, countries uh, in the twentieth century, Brazil, and later in the twentieth century, Argentina. Although the case of Argentina, I don't know if it's a manufacturing factory or it's an assembling factory. So uh, I'm not. A hundred percent sure, but um, in neither Spain nor Mexico, um, Singer created a, I mean, opened a factory in its history. Hmm. Um, we we talked a bit before about um, that you know you mentioned that there was in eighteen nineties there was a form of this art department. Um, or later, it's also called the embroidery department. Yeah. Or seems to be called. And then later it's renamed the education department. Um, what, do, what do you feel like, what did focusing on this organizational unit or this set of activities kind of allow you to see in this story? <clears throat> well, so um, that was for me kind of the view of this idea of the gendered corporation, right? Uh, we tend to think about um, cor- big organizations or corporations in this case, kind of emanating effects. <laughs> like, uh, yes. um, let, me, let me explain right. myself. Like, um, perhaps, you know, there is a, a big um, effect on gender practices there's a, a big effect yeah. on labor there's a big but what about back to the corporation and, and yeah, feedback mechanism exactly right? exactly so that's yeah. also that's how i see this i mean the way or the perspective or the view that this departments uh gave me and um and when i looked at this department so the art department that was also randomly called the embroidery department uh, then becomes the education department. And it, and the education yep. department doesn't forget about embroidery, right? They continue right, 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 right. to teach about embroidery. They print all these manuals with embroidery designs yeah. and instructions. And um, so it continues. But is what I was saying before is this domesticity and gender um, norms being part of the corporation. That's where I yep. saw that that evolution yeah. of from being industriousness to being the uh, independent um, woman, that's where I saw mm-hmm. it within the corporation as well. Yep. Um, no, it's really pretty. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And then I also wanted to uh, make uh, kind of go back to your earlier question about collective entrepreneurship. And um, yeah. that was a concept I read about um in the work of Christina Lubinsky, specifically, and Dan Wadani. This idea, you know, for me, within the corporation was the uh, kind of the locals kind of taking over 
the system yeah. that Singer was able to provide <laughs> and make yeah, yeah, it yeah. their own, you know, kind of um, dream, right? What's like we were yeah. talking about before, because owning um, or not owning, but but because it's not a franchise, a fran- is it franchise or franchise? Yeah. Franchise. It's not yeah, a yeah, franchise yeah. really, uh, right. because the person that was manager of a store never owned that store. Right. Um, it didn't even have an agreement to, to kind of do what not. They were employees of Singer. Um, yeah. but it's still uh, the way I see them uh, you know, talking about the store, talking about Singer, talking about being part of a corporation, I see them as their own um project right. <laughs> right yeah and they're caught up right i mean you can almost think of a you know in, in for many of these people you can think of the sewing machine as a kind of capital good mm-hmm. they're doing their own thing they're making objects sometimes for the market or right. just for themselves and it's caught up in all these local activities right mm-hmm. that are business beyond the firm mm-hmm. so i mean and but there's also these feedback mechanisms into the company Correct. so i think i see the collective entrepreneurship thing <laughs> yes singers there it's a dealership. It's not a franchise. Mm-hmm. And yet it's really caught up in this collective set of local activities that that is kind of much richer than just this vision of like, yeah, the, the top down yes. corporation, like shooting things out at people and like <laughs> influencing them or something like that. Right. Yeah. Which is also like this very male disseminating. You know? um, it is I... so ma- it's, it's a very male vision. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my unfortunate hand gestures there. But, yeah. <laughs> I do too. Have yeah. Those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, can I also just kind of, can you kind of, kind of give me a, a sense of like, um, so, you know, part of this collective entrepreneurship thing going on is there's all these creation of manuals mm-hmm. again, which some of them would have been coming from singers. Some of them would have been coming from other places. Mm-hmm. And there's these exhibits mm-hmm. and contests organized. I mean, there's all these activities, right? So can you give us a sense of like what an exhibit was like? I mean, did you ever find images or mm-hmm. just descriptions of what what were what were these exhibits like? Just to give people a yes, sense that's of a it. great question. Um, so yes, there's a lot of images, and I'm gonna take this moment to talk about sources because at some yeah. point when I started research. Uh, and actually, when I finished my dissertation, I did not know about this source, which is a marketing public relations kind of publication by Singer, but it was only published in the UK. And so I didn't okay. know about it. Um, I had talked to scholars that were very well known and that knew about Singer and they said, no, no, Wisconsin Historical Society it has everything in, you know, mm-hmm. um, organization related. Well, it turns out um, I was doing a postdoctoral uh, fellowship in Berlin and I had two weeks of research time in Glasgow. I wanted to go to Glasgow and see what was left of the uh, huge, absolutely enormous factory um, setting that Singer had built in the uh, 1880s, 1870s, 1880s. And um, and then, which was destroyed by by now. I mean, it's, it's it just doesn't exist anymore. But um, when I went there, I went to the local library and I said, "Do you have anything about Singer?" And they said, "Sure, we have." Let me let me count 
mentally. We have, let's say, 40 volumes <laughs> of this public relations marketing magazine that was fed by the different offices around the world and uh, that were sending images and pictures and text about their operations. And also, but it was mostly focused, you know, perhaps half of the publication was British and then the rest was foreign. Yeah. Um, so, well, then those two weeks, that's all I did. I was I just took pictures, <laughs> pictures, pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was wonderful because that actually, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of mm -hmm. presented me with that view that we were talking about, like there was a real system. There was a real organization mm -hmm. within Singer, uh, which was not, which is definitely not part of the official or at least the kind of written business record that I had uh, researched in the Wisconsin, at the Wisconsin Historical Society, which is where um, Singer archives are, the Singer archives are. And so, um, there I could see all these activities. There were little exhibits and large exhibits. These exhibits mm -hmm. were um, perhaps what we would, you know, um, the size, it could go from the size of a kitchen, a small kitchen to the size of mm -hmm. a big house. And usually what they put on display was um, a small accessories or objects that had been of course made with a sewing machine but they were all they were all like home um like objects right so there were pillowcases mm -hmm. there were cushions there were curtains there were tablecloths there were if mm. there was if there were dresses and things like that mostly there were they were um like doll size right um okay <laughs> Um, there were um, napkins that uh, it's just like all you can think yeah, yeah, yeah. that you can give as a gift, you know, to the newborn or to the newlyweds. Or, mm -hmm. um, and so that's on that side. All those objects usually came from the stores, which uh, were actually on exhibit permanently on their window fronts or even, you know, inside the store. Um, and then these um concursos or um contests they mm -hmm. i saw those more uh frequently for for south america so mm -hmm. singer mm -hmm. schools would have courses and so at the end mm -hmm. of one of these courses the girls would um the students which were girls mm -hmm. would um exit would um display their what they had done during that course. And so there were contests yeah. that were also sponsored by the government and um, mm -hmm. or by public schools and, and things like that. These contests, so all these um, exhibitions were mostly focused on embroidery. I Even though mm -hmm. there is a big push for dressmaking and schools, mm -hmm. um, for, especially in the US, are mostly for dressmaking, um, this kind of put uh to show are mm -hmm. usually embroidery they're not so much um you know um mm. the result of of uh dressmaking hmm. so and do you have a do you have a sense of why that is i mean was it just embroidery became a space of hmm. um contest or 
it was just an established genre or something. So embroidery, I um, was in the set was really inter- it, when I look at it more in the in more practical terms, it's kind of the introduction to any sewing, right? So yeah, you can, right, sure. You can the first the stitches you always. You're really making embroidery. It's just the stitches. Yeah. If you give it a design, then it's, it's yep. breed, you know, it could be considered art or creative or but um so yeah. I that could be one reason. The other reason is perhaps dressmaking um was more uh part of vocational schools but also yeah. kind of higher level like if you were really mm-hmm. into it and was going to uh and you were going to work as part of a um department store or you were going to create your own business as a dressmaker then so it's much more uh, you know that i'm not entirely yeah. sure but uh i think that's you know you could show also this side this artistic side more Yes. Clearly, with embroidery than, than with um yeah. plus that kind of home feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my daughter's been taking uh, my nine-year-old daughter's been taking sewing classes recently, yeah. making doll clothes, just as you said. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think that I was just kind of reading it through that experience, and I can definitely see how this become a kind of space of achievement. And uh, mm-hmm. you know no, concepts of self and such. Is she sure. is she using the sewing machine? Is she using a sewing machine? Yeah, Good. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> been able to really master it at all. I can I know how to use it, but I am not good at it. Um, and recently, I yeah. am taking on um, embroidery, and it's much easier. Okay. Um, but it's also it's yeah it's very. I mean, it's easier to do what I'm doing, which is not. <laughs> Nothing yeah. super intricate or, or special. Your last chapter is titled uh, Female Economies in the Era of Global Capitalism. And I saw you kind of a, trying to achieve like a couple different ends in that. So I just want to, you know, what give re- uh, listeners a sense of like some of the things you're trying to do there as you, you bring the book. It's the last chapter before the conclusion. So yeah. what were you trying to do there? Um. <clears throat> I think my uh, main point in that um, in that chapter is that after decades of uh, you know making this relationship between home and sewing and embroidery, um, even though the domesticity ideas ideals change, um, they continue to inform uh, these practices of sewing, and so, um, but it's also about politics. So when you know when political changes happen in both countries um and they especially that chapter talks about mexico because spain would be a little later with the spanish civil war and the um beginning of the dictatorship um is that they also try to modernize what it is to be a, you know the definitions of uh women in in the modern era and when they do they keep this relationships right they keep the idea that women are better at home um home related activities that um following uh ideologies of domesticity which you know which um could mean which they could relate 
also could also be related to independence and and the modern woman um in the case of Mexico that chapter talked about the idea of the modista in casa or sewing uh, at home as both being part of um political ideologies that emphasize Catholic um, values uh, about mm-hmm. you know the the about women being still part of the home and being uh, and needed to be part of the home, but also more left wing um, ideologies mm-hmm. that start to to arise, especially in the after the nineteen twenties in 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 Mexico. Uh, but also in this case in Spain in the 1920s and 30s, although then it's going to be kind of um, um, deleted by the dictatorship. But you could see also in the dictatorship how sewing and this idea of domesticity is just mm-hmm. going to revive again, you know, have, um, mm-hmm. leave a revival once again. Uh, so my goal is to, is in that chapter, is to show how it is so it's such a malleable um ideology but also set of values and virtues that sewing in the home can provide to this uh bigger um ideologies of gender that in both Spain and Mexico are going to kind of change in the 1920s 20s, 20s mm-hmm. and 30s very much linked with changes in politics and changes in regimes um and in both places, both uh, magazines and singer and uh, schools, they continue. There is a continuity of um, this promotion of sewing, either for independence, but also for um, kind of keeping that uh, traditional um, norm or traditional set of um, values that that uh, women would have um bear in you know with a more traditional ideologies of domesticity yeah yeah no i love it i mean that's another way you're kind of challenging the the literature is because it's just like you know i think we when you look at the 20th century and sewing and clothing and all these things it's always about mechanization and you know the rise of like pre-made stuff and you know these lives we lead and eventually it goes to fast fashion and all this stuff but it's like you know, I think you're challenging, uh, you know, that that simple vision of linear change, because it's like, well, actually, like these, these visions, they stick around for all kinds of reasons and become important, right, at different moments. I see them know? as very fluid. And, you know, if for for one set of uh, one sector of the population, or they mean, you know, morality and, and yeah. All sorts of virtues related to the home and the home and as this uh, super uh, as a sanctuary, right? Uh, but for the other sector of society, um, those that want to, you know, to be, you know, those women that um, went to vocational, vocation, you know, to their, um, mm-hmm. to school, to trade schools, to be, to have their own businesses or to just work uh, or, or know more skills, they also, you know, it also works for right. them, right? So, right, um, right. There is this book skills. about, right? There is this book about, um, by. <laughs> God, <it's okay. laughs> 
Uh, it's called patriarchy, reinventing patriarchy. Um, let me. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, about Brazil, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the structure. I will, I will find the book and and let you know. Uh, it, and it's about mm-hmm. how it gets, you know, reinvented um over time, but still, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, we see the um. We see the same power and hierarchy, um, you know, being enforced, which is, you know, mm-hmm. um, women's place in 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 business and in work and in society as you know as not equal. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you're doing you do a lot of different things, uh, and so I would understand if you don't have time to think about this right now. But is there a next historical project for you, or do you know where you go where you would go next? Uh, <clears throat> So as you know, I'm not uh I'm not part of a history department as a tenure track um mm-hmm. professor, so I don't have the pressure of <laughs> jumping yeah. into another project. But I'm yeah. still very uh, you know I'm very interested in um in in business history in international business history, and I'm very interested in these relations that happened between the corporations and society, mm-hmm. and so um. That's where I am heading. I'm also very interested and I don't see lots of research coming out about it, about gender and multinationals. I still don't see, um, you know, developments into into, um, knowing why there is still perhaps uh, uh, a difference and, uh, you know, in the role of women in business or perhaps a difference between, I mean, um uh a gap uh a gender mm-hmm. gap in within corporate boards and things like that i am interested in knowing why historically historically why it's that um and mm-hmm. i think in terms of of uh um using gender to analyze um kind of how historically those hierarchies um, you know, have been there uh, will help us actually know how we can tackle uh, the hierarchies and the differences that still define, mm-hmm. you know, the corporate world and 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 business. Mm-hmm. One of the many things you do, which I think really is important, is that you're the co-editor of and chief of of the New Books Network podcast, uh, New Books Network in Espanol, right? Mm-hmm. And so, can you give can you give listeners a little sense of what that is? And yeah, yeah, tell us about it. Yeah, so New Books Network in Espanol is part of the New Books Network, uh, which I started being a host a few years ago. I thought it was an incredible um, initiative, and uh, its editor Marshall Poe really provides. Um, a, an amazing opportunity for a lot of people, not only as scholars, to kind of put um, a scholarship and a scholarly work out there, um, but also for a kind of a more general audience. And yeah. so when I uh, began, I thought, how, you know, um, there has to be some, there wasn't anything like it in Spanish. And so I directly approached the editor and I asked him if uh, if he would be interested in doing it. And he was, mm-hmm. he was right away very interested. And um, it's been almost two years. Uh, we don't have, yeah. like, I think New Books Network 
has over 500 hosts. We do not have 500 hosts, but we have around 100, which is very good. Um, wow, that's great. Yes, that's and so great. you and actually it's very interesting because the uh, our larger audience is in the US. <laughs> so um, really, yes. Even though, so Spain is also in, you know, there mm. it's very high, uh, but and Mexico and um, and Japan for some reason <laughs> there must be okay, yeah. a big uh, Hispanic yeah, yeah. Um, community there. But or uh, mm-hmm. so, but we do exactly the same as as New Books Network in Español. We um, encourage hosts to interview um, scholars that have just published. Uh, mm-hmm. academic books and also we are doing uh, fiction and non-fiction uh, more trade okay. books and um, cool. yeah it's going well and I invite everyone to listen to it that uh, understands the Spanish to listen to it and contribute to it <laughs> it's wonderful you know I'm, I've been thinking about it a lot in kind of terms of global technology studies and you know like I said I have colleagues who kind of work in that space mm-hmm. and- well, thinking about how we need, uh, you know, more and better platforms for having those conversations and getting word out about that work. But I think part of that has to be doing podcasts in mm-hmm. other language, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to make it build those connections. So hats off to you and your colleagues for doing it. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, I've, I saw this number, but in about two decades, um, perhaps the population that speaks Spanish in the U.S. is going to be <laughs> over <Yeah. laughs> the, the population. That... This does not phase me or bother me at all. <laughs> I'm like, bring it on. Sounds good. Exactly. I'll try so, to play catch up. <laughs> these kind of projects yeah. are, yeah. They're important. Mm-hmm. Paula, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. It's been my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at people's things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts, so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.